uh, we're reading today um, from verses 33 to 37. And Gail's going to be sharing with us this morning from God's Word, and we look forward to hearing uh, what, what God has to say to us today. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of of the great king and do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black simply let your yes be yes and your no no anything beyond this comes from the evil one let's pray together shall we church god we thank you for your uh, word thank you that your word is true Thank you, God, that you're a God of truth and that your word can be trusted. Thank you, God, that your promises never fail. You are true to your word. And this morning as we come to hear your word about telling the truth, uh, God, help us learn from you, God of truth. Help us be challenged and changed. Our hearts are open, God. We want you to speak to us. God, we pray particularly this week for those in our church that need to know the truth that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that you're with us no matter what we're going through. And we want to pray this morning particularly, God, for people that are, are going through difficult times, people that are facing uh, sickness and needing to have uh, surgery, and needing to face uh, treatments in the week ahead, in the months ahead. God, we would just ask now that you would help them to know you as the God who walks with them right through all that they face. God, we thank you for your promise that you are able to do more than we can ever ask or imagine, that, that we know that you are a God of the impossible. And we do pray, God, that you would be uh, strengthening healing and, and helping bring about um, just a real re quick recovery to those that are facing surgery in, in the weeks ahead. God, we pray for those this morning that in these cold times are feeling down and, and really feeling sometimes despairing. And God, we ask that you would come along as the God of all comfort to them. And God, for us, we need your strength every single day. So we just say, Lord, would you please... Uh, guide us, speak to us, lead us as we read your word, as we seek to live each day in obedience to you. Oh God, thank you for these moments now together. ask that you would continue to guide and lead your people this morning and right through all that lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. And good morning. What a challenge from Gary and Eva and um, 
we really do pray for you guys and all that you're doing. Well, we heard from Jonathan this morning about what our um, message is going to be on. And I have to be honest with you, I, I struggled with um, this sermon. Um, I struggled because it's fairly straightforward. Um, if we were to summarise it, it would be this. Don't lie. Don't lie at all. Don't lie ever. Don't lie to God. Don't lie to others. And I added this one. Don't lie to yourself and tell the truth. So really, you can go home. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, Lord... What is it about this sermon that you want us to draw out and really want us to understand? And I think that there's a problem with such a simple statement. And the problem is that we actually do lie and it's not that easy. It's not that easy. You know, the last few weeks we've been, Jonathan has been preaching on the Sermon on the Mount And we've looked at anger and we've looked at adultery and we've looked at divorce and remarriage. And someone said, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is like a kingdom code. It's like a code of ethics. It's like a a guideline of rules for us to follow and to live. And it's about God's ultimate truth for our lives. There was a recent study by Barna Research, which is a research group in America, and this is an American study, but I think there would be very similar analogies to us here in Australia. And they found that only 22% of adults in America believe there is even such a thing as absolute and moral truth. Only 22%. Amongst born-again Christians, they found that 32% of adults believe in an absolute or moral truth. It's not a lot higher. And of born-again Christian teenagers, only 9% said that they believe moral truth is unchanging or absolute. And what we've been learning about in the Sermon on the Mount is that there are some absolutes that God has for us that Jesus has for us. You know, yesterday I went to our local shop and we've been living in the area for 13 years now. And so the local shop owner knows me really well and I think he thinks I'm one of those... He doesn't know what to think about me, actually. (laughs) Um, But he knows that I'm a... um, You know, I belong to a... You know, I'm a faithful person and he's really... He's got some funny ideas about what that means. And I was sending off a package to my son, Jordan, in Melbourne because we still get some of his mail. And he said to me, oh, Jordan's in Melbourne now. And I said, yes, he's been down there for about four months. And he said, oh, where's where's his girlfriend? Because he'd he'd seen Anthea. And uh, I said, oh, she's in Melbourne as well. She's working and... I said, are they getting married at the end of the year? You know, every mother likes the opportunity to <laughs> highlight when their children are getting married. And he said, oh, so, so they're living together straight away. And I said, well, actually, no. Um, 
And I went on to explain that they weren't and where they were living. And we had about a 20-minute conversation. And the conversation went from shock, disbelief, to suspicion, <laughs> to actually by the time I left, I have to say, admiration. And I thought about that and I thought it was instantaneous. The things that we take for granted in our Christian life, ethical Christian character, ethical values are not taken for granted in the world. They're not. I've been at a um, at the last three days in Melbourne. I've been at a subject on death, grief, and loss. And the reason I've got the lurgy is I spent half a day at um, the Faulkner Cemetery in biting cold and wind, walking around the cemetery looking at tombstones. Um, but one of the things that we we focused on while we were down there is the fact that we live in a postmodern era. Now, some of you may not have heard that term, but you need to understand what that is because this is the secular culture that we live in. And postmodernism, which is the time that we live in now, is a reaction to the assumed certainty of scientific or objective truth. Um, postmodernism is more about the person's own individual response to their objective reality. It's relative and there are no moral absolutes. Postmodernism is post because it denies the existence of any ultimate principles and it lacks the optimism of there being a scientific, philosophical or religious truth which will explain everything for everybody. This is the world that we live in. We live in a world where there is a barrage against us that says you have no right to believe in ultimate principle or ultimate truth. And so one of the things I really hope after listening to this sermon today, if you take away anything, what I really would love you to take away with is the fact that our sermon today, although it's on do not lie, tell the truth. I want you to not just take that as a standard that you think, okay, I'll do that because that's what God expects. But I want you to go deeper and think about the fact that we are God's witness. We are reflecting God's character to a hurting, lost and broken world that has no idea of moral absolutes. We are God's character witnessed to this world. And just when I left my, you know, I won't mention his name, but my friendly local um, general store manager, I walked away with him thinking about something that was quite radical and quite different. That's our call. And Jesus says in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath that you have made to the Lord. What does he mean by oath? What is an oath? Well, an oath was a solemn promise 
someone made to indicate that they were telling the truth and it was usually binding because of the witness before God. You know, there are just over 200 examples of oaths in the Old Testament. Um, Abraham, in Genesis 21, Abraham and Abimelech were arguing over a well and they came to a resolution through an oath. They actually, Abimelech said, swear to me that you will give me this well. And Abraham said, I swear it. An oath was your word would be binding. You would swear before God. In Exodus 27, the third of the tenth commandment says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The phrase in the NIV misuse literally means to lift up without any purpose. We are not to take lightly the things that we swear to before God because God doesn't want to be a party to our lives. In Numbers 30, in verse 2, it says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. The Old Testament teaches that a person following God should be an honest person who will fulfil their promises and they must be relied upon to do as they have said they would do. The oaths were used to resolve disputes, to seal arguments or covenants and simply to affirm the truthfulness of important declarations. But a vow, a vow which we hear also is a little bit different. A vow is actually something, a special kind of oath that solemnly swears to pay something to God in return for God's favour or blessing. And in 1 Samuel 1, there's a beautiful story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who vowed that if God would grant her a son because she was barren for so long, that upon the right time she would rededicate her son back to God um, to serve as a Nazarite in the temple, which she did do. That vow was binding. And so we, we are still exhorted to take the same reverence, the same holiness to which these were laid down and apply it today to our own words, to our own uh, vows that we make. You know, one of the vows I think of is the marriage vow, which Jonathan talked about so amazingly last week. And I heard this week that in Australia, the divorce rate is now 48%. That's one in two. But you know what astounded me even more is I also heard this week that amongst Christians, it's even higher. Now, this particular passage is really significant because the world is watching we may experience resistance as Christians for what we stand for. And sometimes it's hard. And God allows grace to process us, to become more and more like Jesus. So we will fail. We will tell. 
the lie. The lie will slip in. We will exaggerate. But we need to be focused and keep striving for a perfection that God wants for us. He's laying it down quite clearly. And the Sermon on the Mount is about representing God's character, as I said, to a lost and fallen world. It's so much more than just don't lie because we are representing his character. What's character mean? Well, character, the definition, is that it's a combination of qualities or features that distinguishes one person, group or thing from another. It's a distinguishing feature or attribute as of an individual, group or category. It defines moral or ethical strength. It's a description of a person's attributes, traits or abilities. And in the Old Testament, when you swore by something, you actually had a corroborated witness to your words. But that witness was also a judge. And they would judge whether you were truthful and whether you followed through with your words or not. And I wonder if we had that in our own lives, a corroborated witness to everything that we said and did, would that change the words and the intent that would come out of our mouths? I think it would change mine. In Hebrews 6, 16, it says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. But what happened in Jesus' day and in this context of Matthew 5 is that in that interim period between Moses and Jesus' time, the Pharisees had developed this elaborate way of getting out of truth, truthfulness. And what they did was they actually developed a system of swearing by something other than God and that allowed them in their thinking to tell a lie. So they would uh, make a, a false statement and say, I swear by God's footstool or I swear by the hairs of my head or I swear by God's heavens. But as long as they thought they didn't have to swear by God alone himself, they didn't have to tell the truth. And I I have to think about this for a moment and think, well, you know, there, there are some, we have developed to some degree some great elaborate systems ourselves. I was looking on the net and Michael Greenwall in May of this year um, had written on Politicians Speak Translated. And he just listened to a few of these interesting ways of twisting the truth. He says, when you hear a politician mention we have a preemptive strike, it basically means this is the new term for attacking people who haven't touched you yet. When they say we will see how the situation develops, they're really saying we don't have the time, the money or the inclination to do anything about this at the moment. 
Lying has come to be known by such terms as being economical with the truth or putting an interpretation on events that was at significant variance with the facts. When a politician says, I'm glad you asked me that, what they're really saying is that was the one question I hoped you wouldn't ask me. And lastly, when they say we're putting the matter to consultation, this can mean one of three things. Number one, we're hoping everyone will forget this unpopular measure we are proposing and then we can bring it back when the media is concentrating on something else and try to slip it in to them that way. Or number two, it can mean we simply hope the matter will go away. Or number three, we can employ consultants that you know will agree with your initial hypothesis and then when they report back, you can claim your original policy has been vindicated. So we're putting the matter to consultation is a way of twisting the truth. So we all do it. So does that mean we should never take an oath? Well, even Jesus took an oath. You know, some um, faiths have believed that categorically, no, you must not take an oath, not even under, um, you know, when you're in a court of law. Um, the Quakers were one such group. But in um, Matthew 26, 63 to 64, when Jesus was before the high priest, just before he went to his death, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, yes. It is just as you say. So the point of the Old Testament was to say that we should fulfil our oaths because we should always be honest. And no matter what, even if the Pharisees tried to get away with, um, you know, trying to just twist the truth, that wasn't what God intended for us. Last week, there was an article in the Age newspaper. You can't read that, but you may have seen that, and I just put it on the overhead to show you. We've had some pretty frightening things occurring in our world. And I think this thing really rocked me last week. It was in the Age, and it was about... Um, and two unsuccessful terrorist attempts, both in London and Glasgow, to blow up buildings with innocent people in them. And the people that were involved in this were actually medical professionals. And the article... Why I wanted to show you this article is because I think it helps us to understand. We look at this... And we think, this is shocking. And it is shocking. How can this happen? 
but I think as you listen to some of the key words in this article, you realise how important and significant it is to keep grounded in God's word, to keep grounded in his kingdom code, to be of good, moral, godly character because it can happen so easily and so surreptitiously that we fall away and we take um, on the world's uh, values. We may not end up being a terrorist, but we fall short of God's plan for us. This article said the men arrested over the botched British attacks did not fit the terrorist stereotype and that has unsettled those whose job it is to identify them. Most of the suspects were doctors with the financial and intellectual capacity to gain their degrees and who took an oath to save lives. Now I looked up the Hippocratic Oath and it says... I will not prescribe a deadly drug nor give advice which may cause a patient's death. I will preserve the purity of my life and my arts and not take life. I will enter every house only for the good of my patients, keeping myself far from all intentional ill-doing and all seduction. It goes on to talk about confidentiality. And we say, how can people that take this oath remembering an oath is a witness before God. How can they do that to preserve life and then at the same time be totally uh, prepared to blow up people's lives? How can that happen? The article goes on to say, the arrested men appeared for the most part diligent professionals with bright futures, extremists will observe aspects of society and work out the weaknesses And one of the weak points could be the respect to which we hold doctors. Now, I want you to underline and take notice of the word extremists. Because, you know, even in our Christian faith, we can so be open to extremism and be influenced by extremism. It doesn't take much to water down God's word to say that, you know, grace, God is a God of grace, which he is, but we forget to add he's also a God of truth and that there should be this balance between truth and grace. And if there's only a God of grace, guess where we end up? We end up tolerating every type of behaviour, of excusing every type of behaviour, of excusing lies, of excusing codes, which God set down for us to model, for him, for us to be his witness, his character to a hurting world. And we know that some Christian faiths have become so extremely liberal that sometimes we just wonder, are they truly representing God's word? So these were extremists and they looked for the weakness in society Now, I have to tell you, and I want to tell you, and I want you to get this straight. When you leave here today, people will be looking at you. Even if you feel, as often I do in my family, even if you feel in your place of work, in your university, in your community, that you are not respected, that there is resistance, I have to tell you that deep down, you are. You are the salt and you are the light of this world and you do have respect. You have the respect 
because the living Lord Jesus lives in you and people will look at you. Goes on to say, experts say this is a decentralised and individualised jihad. Any connections here to postmodernism? To, for people looking at their own reality, individualism, which relies on the internet rather than any local radical figures. I have to tell you, if your head, as Jonathan said a few weeks ago, is always in the internet, is always in secular, in secular, secular literature, nothing wrong with that. But if the waiting is that it's that much and the word is this much, then you have to change it. You have to change it because these men didn't start out as terrorists. The threat comes from a very small number of individuals who twist Islam to justify extremism. How many of us twist God's word? to justify our position. How many of us do that? I do. I bet all of us do. And, you know, I truly believe that the average Islamic person who follows the principles is law-abiding to their faith. But these are extremists. And they fell in, it says, with a small group of men. They often lacked a uniform or well-defined extremist view but the group's insularity and mentality allows for such views to intensify. I think this is a word for us in terms of honouring what comes out of our mouth, of honouring how we live our lives, that we need to be in the body of Christ. We need to be in his word. We need to know his kingdom code so we can live the life God wanted us to do. I have to ask you, what's your peer group like? Who are you associating with in your workplace, in your family? Are they people that will keep you accountable? Are they people that will judge you if you're not honouring to your word? If you're associating with people who have by degrees become looser and looser with truth, looser and looser with God's word, looser and looser with his principles, then, and you've become isolated in that, if you've become insular in that, then you need to come back. You need to get into a small group. You need to come back to God's word. Jesus ends this particular uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount by saying simply, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. <coughs> I've just put a little mark there to say boundaries. I learnt this a few years ago. It's not bad to have boundaries. I'm still working on it. I'm not very good at it, but I'm working on it. It's not bad to have boundaries. It's Jesus himself modelled boundaries. Jesus himself removed himself 
when he needed time out to be with the Father. When, when Peter was trying to get him to change his mind and not to go to the cross, he turned around and he said, get behind me, Satan. That was how strong he had to resist and say no to what Satan was trying to do. Jesus modelled boundaries so clearly. He let his yes be yes and his no be no. It's okay to say that. You know, I think that there are three things which we looked at at the very beginning, which I want to wind up on, which is significant in this section of Sermon on the Mount, telling the truth, not telling lies. The first is that when we do lie or we do fudge the truth or we do exaggerate, well, (coughs) we actually, (coughs) excuse me, We actually lie to God. God knows the hearts of men. And the whole Sermon on the Mount, as Jonathan said in the last few weeks, is not so much to lay down the law to make our lives more constricted. The Sermon on the Mount is to free us. Because you know that when you tell a lie, you are in bondage. You live with that lie but it binds you and we're lying to God and God knows our hearts and he wants our hearts set free. That is why he says when you make a pledge, you mustn't, you mustn't break your pledge. But, you know, when we lie, we also lie to others. And Luke 6.43 says, for the, out of the overflow of the heart, our mouth speaks. So if you want to stop lying, the first thing you've got to do is get your heart right with God and recognise the significance of why you shouldn't lie. It's not just because God doesn't want you to lie. It's because he wants you to witness his character to a lost and hurting world. And, and lying to others has an incredible impact in the body of Christ. In Colossians 3, 9 to 10, it says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. That's an ongoing verb. It's a doing word, being renewed. So I don't want anyone leaving here feeling condemned and feeling like, hey, I've just, I've just blown it. I, I can't get out of it. God lives in you. Jesus has recreated your being, but he's in the process of recreating it. It's an ongoing word. So if you need to set things right today, Make a start today. God is not going to condemn you, but he does want you to change and he does want you to grow and he wants you to remember that lying to others impacts the whole body and it impacts those around you. People are watching. And lastly, Ephesians 4.25 in this says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour for we are all members of one body. It does impact the whole body when we lie. And lastly, when we lie, we not only lie to God or to others, 
but we lie to self. And I believe that lying actually probably comes from a place of false belief within ourselves. Often it's what we tell ourselves who we are is where out of the overflow of our hearts speak our words. And, and it's in our hearts where our personality resides. It's in our hearts where our will resides. It's in our hearts where our, our identity resides. And so if we're telling ourselves, I am what I own, or if we're seeking approval through attainment, or if we're telling ourselves, I am the source of my own life, or if we're telling ourselves, I am whatever I believe, as in postmodernism, or maybe we're telling ourselves we're of no value, then that is definitely going to impact. What, what, what comes out of our mouth? So lying to self is very significant. You know, the only thing you should be telling yourself if you've asked Jesus Christ into your life is that I am God's masterpiece. I am a new creation because of what God has done for me. Colossians 3.10 says, we have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. You see, it's not just telling the lie that hurts. It's what that means to God, to others and to us. It's what it means to a lost, to a postmodern, secular world. And guess what? God's left it up to us. God's left it up to us. So I want to wind up by saying God gave us a fantastic scripture in John. And it says, you shall know the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Know him. You shall know the truth. And guess what? The truth shall set you free. Lying keeps us in bondage. And God wants us to be set free. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you now. We give you glory. We give you praise for all that you are. And we thank you for your word because your word is more about spirit of the law than just the law itself. Help us, Jesus, to take your truths, for you are the truth, deep into our hearts and change us. Help us to be different people, Lord. Help us to be salt and light to a lost and hurting world. Help us, Lord Jesus, to reflect your character and witness your character to a lost and hurting world. Help us, Lord, to mind our tongues and grow us in truthfulness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.